Welcome to this edition of the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. The podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, and I'm joined by the well-clad Rob Dunham, looking good in his uh, L.A. jersey there. Yes, it's shiny. Yes, very nice. (laughs) So if you haven't noticed, Rob has been wearing soccer jerseys for every one of these podcasts if you've been watching us on YouTube. And if you have, have not noticed, if you have watched our YouTube videos, you may notice that we are both in different locations than usual. Yes, yes, varying it up, changing it up. So <laughs> anyway, we got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we are talking about, uh, we're going to do some memories of Robin Williams. We're going to talk about why it was that Star Trek was not the blockbuster that everyone anticipated it being. Do we actually miss blockbuster video stores? All that plus our watch list. So, Rob, let's uh, let's jump right in. And and we have to start a little bit on somber news. Um, It was a couple days ago was the sixth anniversary of the death of Robin Williams. And... Robin Williams contributed quite a lot to the world of cinema. And I thought it might be a good time to take a moment and just kind of remember Robin Williams and and what all he brought to the movie industry. And I thought maybe the best way to do it was just to be talk about uh, some of our favorite Robin Williams movies. So let's start with you. What the, what do you, uh, what do you like about Robin Williams? I mean, it's, it's, uh, not a serious role at all, though there haven't been a whole lot of serious Robin Williams movies, but um, his performance as the genie in Aladdin is something mm. that I think I'll always remember him for. And I think that it made the movie and any other actor who had tried to do it would not have made the movie what it was. And uh, I think there's a whole lot of people our age and younger who have benefited from that performance and even my kids are in love with that movie and with the character that and the energy that he brought to that uh, movie and all the different accents and impressions and just wild craziness that he pretty much had free license to try things out and uh, he killed it in that role. Yeah. Aladdin was my favorite of the Disney movies. Not that I was super into them as a kid, but that was always my favorite. It was 100% because of Robin Williams and the genie role. Absolutely. How about you? uh, I have two favorites. I have two favorites that are kind of inextricably linked. I have, um, and they they tend to be his more serious roles. And uh, Goodwill Hunting, for sure. I love Goodwill Hunting. Like that is one of, it's probably in my top 10, perhaps maybe top 20, but it is a fantastic movie. I love Goodwill Hunting and the role Robin Williams played there, um, won an Oscar for, um, just, just fantastic in that role as the mentor to Matt Damon's character and the psychologist um, dealing with a highly talented but highly troubled kid and just the role he plays in bringing that out and the depth of his character in that uh really really showed the range of an actor that he is known mostly for his antics and for his comedy 
um, probably better than almost any other of the comedic guys turned turned movie actors mm. in the variation of his roles and what he can do and that he's completely believable in a 100% serious role. So that one and also uh, Dead Poet Society. I just mm. have a soft spot for Dead Poet Society and his role as the as the the teacher, Professor Keating, who challenges uh, challenges the the boys in his class. Like 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 you said, the broad variety of roles and tones that he took in movies is something that a whole lot of people can't pull off. I mean, the two you mentioned there are both incredibly serious, dramatic, meaningful, heartfelt performances, and then. Uh, you look at Mrs. Doubtfire mm-hmm. <laughs> in contrast, or if you want to go even further afield, you look at Death to Smoochie, which is <laughs> one of the most insane, comedic, twisted performances I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Uh, not not the uh, you know most appropriate movie <laughs> ever made, but he is definitely hilarious in it, and it it's incredible that somebody could have such a broad range. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look even all the way back to good morning Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and just all the different roles he was able to pull off is really uh, an achievement. Yeah. Even sometimes within a singular movie, like look to one that I also kind of like hook where he starts mm-hmm. off as this super awful, terrible father and pulls that off tremendously to where he's the fun-loving Peter Pan by the end of the movie. Um, just, just that shift in his acting within a singular movie um, showed he really was a fantastic actor. It, I mean, we, could, we could keep uh, – the, the crazy thing about him, the, the most impressive thing about him is I feel like we could keep going on and on and on. Yeah. Um, what Dreams May Come, uh, not, not a like, well-received critically movie, movie, but a movie that I have a soft spot for. Yeah. Um, it's another one that the list just goes on and on it does. about of what he has done and put on film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just on this anniversary of his, of his death, just re- being able to remember what he did contribute, what he was able to contribute to film. Um, rest in peace, Robin Williams. Mm. We're, we were blessed to have you in the movie industry. So, um, and now move on to something a little bit more fun. Um, this I put on the outline just because this makes me very happy. Um, Tron 3. Tron 3. It has a director. It has a star actor in Jared Leto. And it, while it's not officially announced, it looks much, much more like it's going to happen. And I got to tell you, I am psyched about this. I am psyched about it. I love Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy to me was fantastic. It came out in 2010. I've been waiting for a sequel for this and just keeps getting pushed off. So the fact that we are this close makes me happy. If they can pull off the same tone and feel of Legacy, then there's a chance for it to be something special for sure. And uh, maybe we can get a Daft Punk 30 Seconds to Mars song on the soundtrack yes yes (laughs) daft punk 30 seconds to mars collaboration i am so here for that that needs to happen that needs to happen oh man the soundtrack fantastic must happen oh yeah yeah the visual tones of that movie were unlike anything i've ever seen i saw the tron legacy in in 3d and we talked about this uh you and i had talked about this a while ago but um that movie in 3D was stunning. It was just stunning. 
in IMAX. And so I'm hopeful that this thing gets done and that they're able to do it even better 10 years later uh, with all the technological advances. I, I just can't wait for it. Okay, so moving on to this. Um, I saw a really fun article in uh, Entertainment Weekly this past week. There is one, count them, one blockbuster video left in the entire world. And that blockbuster video is in Bend, Oregon, and it is now open for an Airbnb. You can now rent this blockbuster and spend the night in the blockbuster. They have a whole living room set up and you have free reign of all of the movies that are currently within that blockbuster to watch. This has to be a dream come true for any like true movie buff. Yeah, we, we should say that you do, currently you have to be a local to the Bend, Oregon area and you're only allowed to watch movies that are not already checked out. But uh, other than that, it's uh, pretty, <laughs> unique and awesome experience. Yeah. I think this, this is cool. It's, it's, it's kind of like if you're a baseball player, you get sleeping out on in a major league baseball stadium or mm. something along those lines um, to just be surrounded by all of the movies. Um, would just be, it's just a cool idea. It's a cool thing. It's, it's this blockbusters now kind of got its own like little nostalgia and it's a little fan club just from being the last one. And the idea of spending the night there just sounds like a cool experience. Yeah, I know on Reddit, they've had a couple of posts about them selling some merchandise, blockbuster pants and shirts and hats. And uh, somebody posted a picture of a billboard from the town. It has a picture of one of their employees with a rotary phone. And it says, <laughs> don't know what to watch tonight. Why don't you give me a call? <laughs> and has the number for blockbuster video listed on it. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. And so that, that kind of brings us into our first discussion item for the night. And it, it involves Blockbuster. And I want to throw out a premise to you. And I want to see what you think about it. I was contemplating recently that since the demise of Blockbuster and other video stores like it, I think we've lost something from the movie industry from the personal movie industry as fans. I think we have lost something with the demise of the video stores and Blockbuster. Now, it makes perfect sense given technology and given where we're at that this was inevitably going to happen. But let me give you my premise. It's Friday night, you know, back 2005. It's Friday night and you're with some friends and you wanna, you wanna go see a movie. You wanna watch a movie. You get together, you drive somewhere, you drive to a Blockbuster, you possibly go out to eat, you, you grab some pizza or something, you go to a Blockbuster, you go searching around the store to find the right movie. It feels like an event. It feels like you went out and did something when you come back with your, your pizza and your movie that you all selected. It felt like you did something. Whereas now what we do is we sit at home and we scroll through Netflix or we scroll through Prime or we scroll through something else to figure out what movie it is. It doesn't actually feel like we did anything. You didn't leave the house. It wasn't an event. And secondly, along those lines is in a blockbuster store, you could walk around the back catalog, which is always like in the center of the stores, all the older movies. You could walk around and visually see all the back catalog. 
you had a much better time navigating movies that you might have missed from previous eras. It's almost impossible to find older movies on Netflix and all these, the algorithms and the generation. There's so much content on there. It's really difficult to actually do some sort of targeted search of the back catalog. And I think there's a whole genre and whole eras of movies that have gotten lost because you can't potentially find them in a video store. What do you think? Well, I think that speaking to your uh, hypothetical scenario is very much a real scenario for us when we were in high school and college. I remember in college having the dorm section have uh, one of the blockbuster passes where you could have like four or five movies out at a time. We would rotate who went and picked out the movie and, and just keep on rotating and rotating. Um, yeah, I on think my bill, that, by the way, I paid for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the big thing, yeah, Ryan and I were in the same dorm section, for those of you who uh, may wonder how long we've known each other. It's been a while. Um, the communal aspect of being able to look through the movies, but also talk to the employees or talk to other random people who were there. Like, I can't tell you how many times I had discussions with people have you seen this yet? What do you think of it? Is it any good? Like, what would you compare it to? And you can get some of those same experiences um, online through, through Reddit and through other forums like that, but it's not the same kind of on-demand instantaneous feedback you got from being inside the store, holding the movie up to someone else and saying, have you seen this yet? Um, I think there, there was, even then, uh, you talk about the back catalog, even then I feel like there was a certain pressure, expectation to, to uh, try and watch something new. All of the new movies lying the outside of the store on the walls were the display, you know? And uh, I think it, often I would look through all of those and if there, only if there wasn't something new that I wanted to watch that wasn't checked out, would I go over to the back catalog. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's something to that hunt, that experience of finding one of the new movies still there, not actually checked out, yes. especially when it was brand new. And uh, when they introduced uh, the different passes you could get where you were guaranteed to be able to watch uh, X number of new movies, like the first couple weeks they were out. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I, I miss the experience of, for sure. Yeah. That, that kind of panic run, hey, we got to get there before this thing goes out. I mean, it's, it's kind of dumb now that we consider it, but it was kind of fun. There is an element of fun to it. And I think there is, there is an element that's been lost with that. And I love having all the on-demand options and I love what some of these streaming services are really brought. But I think there is just something that we miss. So, well, speaking of the idea of blockbusters, so um, a Forbes article came out about Star Trek. Do you want to set this one up for us? Yeah, so essentially the article was uh, pitting Star Trek or contrasting it with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and saying, why did the Star Trek movies not succeed financially as, as much as the Marvel <laughs> movies did? Why didn't they turn into worldwide blockbusters? Now, they certainly made some money, but they just didn't make as much as the Marvel movies. And as they went on, they made less and less money. And the most recent one, Star Trek Beyond, was a disappointment when, when looking at the financials. It didn't even recoup 
its budget domestically compared to what they spent on the movie. And so the question is, why were these movies not as successful as the Marvel movies or not as successful as the new Batman, Christopher Nolan franchise and some other things that came along around the same time? Uh, if you had to pinpoint uh, one factor that you think might have been primary in these movies not succeeding at the same level, where would you go? Where, where would you lead that discussion? It's it's tough to answer. My my one thought process is is that Star Trek is too much of a known franchise. It has too much of its own history to contend with. I think there is there's just too much to say. This is what Star Trek is. And it's so hard when you have literally since the 60s, you've had Star Trek, mostly TV, but also a ton of movies out there where people have a defined idea of what Star Trek is. And so even though specifically the the first one, Star Trek, the reboot with uh, Christopher Pine uh, and that crew was really well done and it was really good. I think it just has a harder time reinventing itself in a way that like the MCU did. And I think in some ways the comparisons are a little bit unfair in that the MCU is something we've never seen before. And even the MCU within its first couple films had a flop. I mean, the, the Hulk movie flopped. And that's twice that they've had Hulk movies that haven't done what they're supposed to. So even within that, there's some properties that even a successful franchise has a hard time turning into blockbusters. And I think, you know, even with Marvel, they kind of decide, yeah, we're not ever going to do more Hulk movies. Um, So I think it's a little bit unfair to compare Star Trek to something that we've never seen before in the MCU. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's hard, it's hard for me to accept because I am a big Star Trek guy. I love Star Trek. And I, and I thought the movies, for largely speaking, were good. I just think they, there's – to reinvent it, you really have to define your place within the industry. And I think Star Trek, while basically said, hey, let's turn it into a fun, cool action movie, was not enough of a definition to say why you should re-engage with this franchise given the franchise's history. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think that they they made an attempt to uh, 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 make it more pop culture-y, if that makes sense, with yeah. the new movies, and it didn't quite get there. And for me, a couple of things may have been that, um, not that the actors are not uh, top quality actors, I think uh, Carl Urban, Zachary Kinto, Chris Pine, um, Zoe Saldana, all these people are, are good actors, but not necessarily like the top, top level actors. Now, not to say that the Marvel actors were all necessarily that either. In fact, Robert Downey Jr. pretty much revived his career through these movies, but it seems, it seems from an outside perspective that there's more star power in the Marvel universe. And that, you know, maybe just because of the success of the movies themselves, to be fair. But I think there is something to that. And I also think that uh, when you're looking at Star Trek, like you said, the weight of history and back catalog of Star Trek things that already exist, the other Star Trek movies that came out all had characters from the TV show already established 
characters that everybody knew and were already invested in when you look at um, the original Star Trek movie and uh, the other ones with uh, um, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and that crew. Everybody knew who they were, so there was an investment there. And then when the uh, Next Generation movies came out, uh, there's an investment there too um, with Sir Patrick Stewart and everyone else involved in those. So to reboot it with a whole brand new cast of characters who had previously no experience or involvement in the Star Trek universe at all, I think there's a little hesitancy there. And I think that personally, I, I thought that the first movie was great. And I thought in, for me, Into Darkness is one of the best sci-fi movies of the last 20 years that I've seen. Yeah. But people just it for whatever reason. And I don't think it's any fault of the actors. I don't think it's any fault of the direction. I like, I really don't think there was an issue with those movies. I think Star Trek Beyond had some issues that are separate from the first two. I don't think it was as, quite as good a movie. I think it was a little more disjointed. Uh, but I, I just think it's the nature of things that it wasn't going to be a crazy blockbuster success. And the article ended saying, even if you put A-list actors in and you spend an unlimited amount of money, is Star Trek ever going to be what Marvel is? And the answer is no. And I think... You know, as disappointing as that might be for those of us who like Star Trek, I think that's reality. It's never going to be Marvel. It's never going to be Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a, its own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think and I think the difference is is when you when you like compare it to Star Wars. Star Wars basically had, for the most part, three movies that it built a legacy on, and then what it's done since then has has been basically building on that legacy. And so I think you're starting to see, even with the Star Wars movies, as they broaden out and continue to make more and more movies, um, some of the attention has waned slightly. I mean, they're still making tons and tons of money, but I think mm -hmm. Star Wars benefited from having a very small back catalog and large distances between their movies. I think if you're going to reinvent Star Trek, it's going to be difficult to do at this point. And so I think yeah. you might be right. I think it's just, it is what it is. And the people who will like it will like it. Um, I wish it were different, but I think that's what it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, that might not be good enough for a big sci-fi franchise anymore. Just because yeah. the whole paradigm has shifted with the success of some of these other franchises. Yeah. The landscape has changed. So, Okay. So let's, let's, let's move on to our watch list. So um, for what we were watching last week, um, if you followed our podcast from last week, we talked about an article um, about 30 overlooked movies of the last 25 years. And we decided to, for, for this past week, we were going to dive into a couple of the ones on that list. Um, in particular, Sunshine and Black Hat. So... Um, let's start out with Sunshine. Um, came out in 2007, sci-fi movie where um, they're, they're a crew on a spaceship journeying to try and revive a sun to save the planet. Um, Rob, what, where did you go with this? What, what were your thoughts here? Uh, my initial overarching thoughts, I found the tone very interesting because it started out more drama suspense and ends up in more of a horror genre, which was really interesting to me, how they combined those two things. 
from mm -hmm. it, it seemed as the movie went on uh not that the whole thing is necessarily realistic to begin with but it seemed fairly grounded in the reality of their circumstances at the beginning and seemed to shift more and more away from that towards more of a fantastical otherworldly kind of feel as the movie progressed and i think they pulled it off <laughs> um but I, I i i enjoyed the movie i really liked the visuals i really enjoyed the the soundtrack that went along with the movie it felt uh the movie felt simultaneously very big and very small and I think that for a movie to succeed in the environment of outer space, that's the kind of thing you're looking for. For there to be interpersonal dynamics that matter to you, but also the concept of being so small in such a vast space. And I think they pulled that off really well throughout the movie. What are your, I know you, you had seen the movie before. This mm -hmm. is the first time I had seen it. Um, having seen it again, is there, anything about your thoughts that changed or what are your perspectives on the movie? Yeah, I don't yeah. remember having seen it before. I don't remember. I agree with you that it kind of turned almost into a little bit of a horror film at the end. I did not remember it having that kind of twist towards it. Um, and it kind of, as I was watching it the second time, it actually reminded me of another movie that took that kind of turn, although probably in a more dramatic sense. And that was Event Horizon, mm. uh, the Sam Neill flick. Um, from, oh, I forget when it was, like late 90s, like 96, 97, somewhere in that range, where it starts out as a sci-fi adventure and then pivots to horror and becomes this like deep horror movie. I don't think it had that dramatic a turn, but it did remind me of that. I remember the visuals. I remember the feel and tone. Um, I thought it was interesting too, because they actually had a pretty good cast of characters for a more indie film, because a lot of them... Um, you have Benedict Wong, you have uh, Chris um, Evans, Chris Evans, you have um, Michelle Yeoh. So a lot of them, Michelle Yeoh aside, who has been around forever, um, a lot of them weren't as well known, but they're and increased significantly in, in appeal since mm -hmm. then. So it was interesting that you get a cast of what turned out to be pretty good actors. Um, but the one thing, the one thing we, you and I both talked about was what they did at the end with the villain. And this is a spoiler if you need a spoiler warning. They never show the, the villain's face. They kind of do this streaky, um, blurred visuals around him the entire time as he's wreaking havoc on the ship and, and tearing things apart. Um, what did you think about that? Because it did seem out of place in the movie a little bit. I, the thing that I find interesting about it is that throughout most of the movie, there's no expectation or anticipation that there's even going to be a threat from this kind of source. And it just shows up at one point in the movie when the computer says there's five life signs on board the ship instead of the expected four. And he goes to the sun viewing room and there is the villain, but we don't ever really see him. We see like, like you said, a lot of lens flare streaky visual effect to him. Uh, seems like the care. Well, the character is the captain from the, first mission that didn't succeed 
And in some way, it seems like he survived a crazy event where everyone else was burned up by the sun. And he says that he was, he talked to God uh, face to face and he told him to do all these crazy things. And to me, I think the way they represented it visually leaves it open for interpretation as to whether is this thing really happening to them? Is it in their minds only as they go crazy and all kill themselves somehow? Um, I don't know if that's why he filmed it that way, but to me it leaves it open for interpretation. And I'm just curious as to why, because it is different, like you said, from the tone and look of the whole rest of the film. Uh, do you think it was effective or do you think it was more of a gimmick that didn't quite accomplish what he was trying to accomplish? I'll be honest. I think my, my primary impression of it was distraction. It felt distracting. It didn't feel like it aided or gave it a sense of mystery. I think it was just distraction. Um, I don't under, like, it's hard it, it's hard to fathom exactly what they accomplished with it. I know it kind of gives the sense of there's this mysterious, amorphous, what happened to this guy, like bent to it. And I guess it aids in that, but I just, I found it distracting more so than I found it um, added to the tone in the scene. And, and even the bad guy's character itself just brings up significantly more questions which aren't delved into or answered at all and it brought up a lot of stuff that it just wasn't able to answer with his character in general so that you just chalk up the lens flare technique up to another added element stacked on top of that that didn't quite work mm -hmm. um so i mean by that, no means by no means does it make it a bad movie i yeah. just think that it just like you said it brings up questions tonally about what exactly was the point <laughs> Yeah. At the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's it's not the other movie we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So let's let's move on to the second movie off that list that we we watched this past week, and that was Black Hat. Uh, Black Hat came out a couple years ago, starring uh, Thor himself, uh, Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> and yeah. This movie was interesting from a standpoint. That's, that's a word. Uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Talk, uh, talk so, about Black Hat here. So to me in general, and I, I said this to Ryan earlier, that sometimes I, I love movies so much that sometimes I forget that bad movies exist because <laughs> I, I just enjoy almost all of them. And there was just, there's something about this movie from the very beginning uh, involving cooperation between the Chinese government and the U.S. government and this Chinese soldier suddenly coming to the United States to help break out his former roommate from MIT out of prison to help them thwart uh, an evil mastermind who's trying to blow up nuclear power plants and fix stock markets and all these things that there was an over enveloping air of unbelievability to the movie for me. It, I never really got invested in the movie because it didn't seem like any of it was possible. 
How, how do you feel about that statement? Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right on from that aspect. Um, and for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, it's, it's basically the plot is it's a hacker movie. So it's, it's supposed to be a classic hacker movie. And Chris Hemsworth plays this super villain hacker. And you talked about the, the Chinese government, and the American government. I mean, right away, it's a virus affected China badly and it affected U.S. not so badly. So let's send the Chinese guy over to America and we'll work together and we'll figure this out. There's, I mean, there's no tension. There's no, like, he's just instantaneously in the next moment working with the U.S. government, breaking it, breaking someone out of prison who's this major hacker who's committed all these crimes. It's like... You can hear the dogs upstairs. There are two dogs here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have control over their volume, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think with the movie, I think... Again, the unbelievability was a key was a key factor in it. I mean, it had there were some good elements to it. I, I thought the pacing was done well. I thought some of the some of the twist elements were were decent and and then well. But I think like a scene at the end, it's a shootout scene where the bad guys are shooting. The FBI agents roll up in the middle of this massive firefight and just get out of their cars and stand there and get shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not even attempting to hide behind their own vehicle they just get out and get shot no you made the good point about lack of tension when it came to the original premise of the movie which is the two governments cooperating the the arguments seem to be well we've never done that before we can't do it but we really need to okay like <laughs> yeah there, there there was nothing there and Another thing I saw in the movie and was wondering your thoughts on uh, when it comes to movie, like you said, you classified it as a hacker movie. When it comes to this kind of movie or other movies that are deeply technological, why does it seem that Hollywood dumbs this stuff down to the point where it's unbelievable? Like the FBI agent opens up a PDF attachment to an email without knowing what it really is or who it's from and just taking the person at their word, like that would never happen in real life. <laughs> yeah. So why do we, why do we insist on these kinds of things being included in movies? Do you think that the movie did so poorly because of things like this, where the audience felt like disrespected and decided I'm not going to tell anybody about this because it only made $20 million from a $70 million budget, which tells me the people who saw it recommended it to no one. Yeah, I, I will take those. There's kind of two questions. So I'll take them. I'll take them one at a time. I think the first one about technology. I think one of the problems that sometimes you have is I think there's a temptation when you're talking about something complex to view your audience as less intelligent than they are. There's a tendency to think your audience is stupid. Mm -hmm. And it's not done because you think your audience is stupid, you, you, but you think, oh, I have to explain this, or I have to dumb it down so that everyone can understand. But the reality is, basically, you treat your audience as if they're dumb. And I don't think you can succeed if you don't have trust in your audience. And this ventures out slightly from movies, but I think this is done very, very well in the TV show Mr. Robot, which is mm -hmm. also a hacker drama. 
Um, they do not assume that their audience is stupid when it comes to the technology or the ins and outs of hacking. You can explain where you explain, but you don't have to pretend they're stupid or you don't have to dumb things down because you're worried that they won't get it. I think Nolan, we talk about Nolan a lot, but Nolan does a great job of this. He doesn't assume his audience is stupid. Um, in terms of why people didn't like it, I think in part, yeah, nobody told anybody about going to see this movie. I also think, I mean, right from the bat, I, I have a hard time viewing Chris Hemsworth as a hacker, as a viable, legitimate hacker. I just do not, I do not see that in his role. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there's a lack of believability right from the start based on casting. I think they thought if we just cast Chris Hemsworth because he's a big actor and everyone knows who he is, people will just go see the movie. But I think there's not a believability to Chris Hemsworth, evil super hacker. Yeah, there was something very off tonally about there being a firefight with Chris Hemsworth and his friend and his skinny friend being the one who was shooting at other people and Chris Hemsworth was hiding behind a box. Like, it, it just didn't seem real. <laughs> and I think there's always the tendency when you're dealing with like hacker dramas to go hacker action and then try to portray those characters as the same thing. And they really tend, they're really not the same subset of people. Yeah. And so I think you even saw this like old school movie, Swordfish, you know, mm -hmm. late 90s Swordfish. Um, so I think there's just a tendency to, to not let it be what it is and to try to combine it with big time action. So Black Hat does not get two thumbs up from us in case anyone no. was wondering. No, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not great. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's talk about this coming week. All right, Rob, what, what you watching this coming week? Uh, that's a good question. I should probably think of something. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we are at, uh, we're, we're on vacation for the weekend here. And uh, we have, we brought our Roku so that I could have my Voodoo account hooked up and we have Wi-Fi. Nice. So uh, I know in there, there are like probably 60 or 70 movies that we own through my brother that I haven't watched. So I, I think one thing I'm going to do uh, this week, this weekend, probably after my wife is asleep is uh, try and watch a horror movie that's on there that my brother has included because he loves those and mm. I don't. So um <laughs> I, I think that I, I might be leaning towards The Witch, which is something that he has really recommended to me mm. as being a high-quality movie. So we'll go with that. And then um, another one that I've seen on that list in our account that I haven't watched yet is The Ides of March. Mm. Um, and I think I, I'll check that one out, too. Political drama with uh, Ryan Gosling, I believe, is the star of that. And uh, so we'll, we'll check those two out for my personal uh experience and see how those go yeah i like that what i remember yeah so for me this week i will um i will be watching inferno the third of the um robert uh langdon uh dan brown novel books from mm. the da vinci code angels and demons and inferno um i just finished uh reading the book inferno so i always got to go watch the movie after you after you read the book so i like them and i i like that i oh for the most part i like that whole series of movies i think they're decent movies um so i'll be watching that i also 
our local library was selling some Blu-rays. So I picked up a couple of nice. Blu-rays. So I might watch those. And that was uh, Ghost in a Shell and uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. So I might mm. check them out as well. Nice. All right, Rob, you got anything else for us? Uh, my lunch is here, so I'm going to go eat that. Oh, love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the that is this week's episode of Film for Fans. Uh, go check us out on all the podcast platforms, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and check out our YouTube channel. And if you haven't been, go to filmforfans.com and check out our website. And we look forward to catching you next week. Until then, have a great time at the movies. Pop that popcorn. <laughs>